Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life, if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is Wednesday, November 7th, 2012, and this is episode 1015 of the Survival Podcast. I kind of have a two-parter for you today. I got kind of a mini-segment in the beginning on disaster response and some thoughts I have about how this community can help with future disasters. I've come to some conclusions I'll share with you when we get into the main topic of today's show. And then right after that, I'll have uh, Keith Blazer, uh, who is a backyard beekeeper. Uh, one more on beekeeping here. I think we have one more in the beekeeping blitz lined up. What's really cool about Keith is Keith is not a professional beekeeper. He's not even really a highly involved beekeeper. He's a guy with a few hives in his backyard to get some honey out of him. And I think there's a lot to be learned from that. And when I heard how, you know, even with that approach, he got a bunch of honey out of his hives, even with some pretty bad failures, um, I was like, man, I can make a lot of meat out of that. So I think uh, Keith is actually going to inspire a lot of people who are on the fence about this and not sure they can do it. Uh, with the kind of amateur backyard, I have a few hives approach, because that's what I think most of us will end up doing. I don't think most of us are going to be professional uh, beekeepers with you know a, a 15 hive or 25 hive apiary and, and all of that jazz, uh, selling stuff. I think we just want to you know some honey and some bees and and just add it to what we have on our homesteads, whether they be urban or rural. So we'll have him on in just a minute. Before we do that, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsor. Sponsor of the day, number one today, J.M. Bullion. You know, I, I really felt that the sponsor lineup needed to have a precious metal sponsor. I, I, I felt like we can't not have someone that I can recommend to you guys. And when we decided to make a change there, I went out to find a company that would beat the big boys on price and still give you personalized service. That ain't easy in the precious metals industry. There's razor-thin margins there. Everybody's trying to beat each up over, you know, 10 cents an ounce and stuff like that. But I found it. I found a company that you can go to and you can buy silver from for less than you would pay Apmex or Monix. And that company's JM Bullion. And you can talk to the owner of the company directly if you want to. Personal service, but outstanding pricing at the same time. Check them out today at jmbullion.com. They also do give you a discount on orders over $300, and then there's another discount uh, rebate on orders over $1,000. It doesn't take that long to add up to an order like that uh, when it comes to uh, silver and gold. And uh, that is an MSB member benefit. So they're not just a new sponsor, they're also a supporter of the MSB, and they've been doing a great job with that. Check them out today again, jmbullion.com. Next up... Uh, back, uh, backyard food production. You know, I'll tell you what. Marjorie Wildcraft is, is a pretty awesome person. And she really figured out when to get out of the property business and into the homesteading business. And when she did that, she did it in a big way. They provide so much. It, it's unbelievable how much they provide of their own needs for self-sufficiency on the little farm south of Austin. And they put all of that together in a DVD series called Growing Your Groceries that shows you exactly how to do it too. Carbohydrate crops, vegetable crops, protein, you know, eggs, you name it, it's there exactly how to do it. It's kind of like a little mini course taking you right through how to turn your backyard into a food production machine. You can learn more at backyardfoodproduction.com. 
Com. All right, with that wrapped up, I want to go ahead and, uh, well, uh, reminder real quick, uh, I do have that PowerPot video out. I, I mentioned it yesterday. I really think you guys should take a look at that. I think it's one of the coolest little products I've ever seen. Uh, I think there's some misconceptions on its practical nature. People saying, well, I can go buy a $14 solar charger for my phone. Yes, and it'll put out about one milliamp, and uh, it'll only work when the sun's directly shining. Uh, and, you know, this is a product that puts out five watts of power. And no less, no less than the awesome and highly critical of all things, anal retentive, beat it up and make sure it works, Steve Harris highly uh, is highly impressed with the power pot. Uh, actually discussing with them now how he can help them by becoming a distributor for them. Uh, that's a pretty big endorsement. So check out my video on the power pot. I will put a link in today's show notes if you haven't done so already. And uh, those of you asking about the BioLite stove, that interview or that interview, that review will be probably coming next week when we get back. We're going to be going to Texas here for this wedding for my buddy and all. So uh, wanted to remind you about that, and I want to remind you real quick, member support brigade. Um, you know, if you want to support the show, 18.3 cents an episode is what it costs to do that. Become a member support brigade m member, then log into your member support area. Look at all the stuff that you're probably going to buy in the next year anyway. Figure out where you can get discounts on it from the vendors that support us there and get your money back. That's, that's what I try to do when I put Members Brigade together. Yeah, I want you to support the show. Yeah, I want you to help me, but I want to give you a product that's worth more than you pay for it. That's what I try to do there. So if you've been on the fence, just know this. If you buy long-term storage food, seeds for your garden, tools, stuff like that, this membership will pay for itself. All right. With that wrapped up, let's go ahead and get into a couple topics today instead of just one. I want to start out with my idea. I want to put together what I'm going to call the TSP DRT, Survival Podcast Disaster Response Team. I, I have gotten conflicting reports on how effective FEMA and Red Cross has been in New Jersey. I've had people on the ground telling me, hey, you know, I've seen them actually in these places doing a good job. They're communicating with people. They're helping people. And then I've gotten other people to say, you know, I'm some, some of the worst. I haven't seen anybody, especially from them. So, you know, you guys know that I, I got really turned off on the Red Cross when I heard about Haiti. That these people took in $350 million in an ad campaign for Haiti And we have people on the ground there that have never seen evidence that they've done a thing. And there's a lot of people in Haiti that live there still saying, I've seen nothing. Now, Haiti's not that big a place. It's a pretty small island. Um, you could pretty much dedicate a million dollars an acre if you took the money that was actually donated for Haiti and put it into the area that was affected by uh, the, 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 actual, you know, the actual area that was really affected by the earthquake. You could have pretty much rebuilt Port-au-Prince into a modern city for $350 million dollars. I mean, sir, I mean, it's 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 a an abomination to me that people gave their money and the results didn't come. When I looked at what happened here, I said, "Let's give them a chance." And I'm getting conflicting reports, and I've realized something: me bitching about the Red Cross doesn't help anybody. I'm sure they do a good job on some things, and I'm sure they suck at other things, and I'm sure the biggest problem is they make so much money and they're so damn big that they do anything that anybody that gets that big and gets that much money and that much power does. And that is they don't, they don't move fast enough, they don't get things done quick enough, and they become a place where you can write a check and feel like you've done something. And that's on us, not on them, because we've allowed them to be that way. And I'm not going to tell you ever again not to donate to the Red Cross. You donate to whoever you want to. And I think we should make charity part of what we do. I'll just tell you personally, until I see a strong indication that they've addressed these problems, which I have not yet, I've heard some encouraging things and some discouraging mixed reports. Until I see that, they'll never get another dime of my money. 
But that doesn't help anybody. And just finding somebody else that's doing it right to give money to, that doesn't really help anybody either. And it's, it's laying down on the job is what I've determined, is what I've been doing. I have this tremendous group of people that listen to me every day. I have a tremendous amount of knowledge. I have a tremendous amount of resources personally. If this happened in my neighborhood or just down the street, I could be down there in minutes charging people's batteries, making them bread, cooking for them, bringing them whatever they need. And I could do that for a week or two as long as my house was okay and it wouldn't really put me out at all. I might have to miss some shows, might even do some live broadcasting from wherever I'm at, but I could do it. If I wanted to go to New Jersey right now and help people, I couldn't do it. I could, but I couldn't do it right. I'm not prepared to do it right. And I wouldn't really be able to organize it so that you guys could help financially or logistically on the ground. And I look at that and I go, Jack, you're a jackass. You've been doing this four and a half years and you're just figuring this out. I've always wanted to help. I never realized how I should be helping. So this is, this is my thought. That we get members of this community that are willing to say, I'm ready to deploy. And that doesn't mean you can always do it. But that means that if there's any way you can and there's a disaster that you're close enough to get to, you'll deploy. You'll go and you'll help in some way. And what I see is, you know, in some places, in some situations, it might be 10 of us. Some, it might be 50 of us. I don't know. It all depends. You know, being able to set up kind of our own relief effort and do simple things for people. Bring in a bunch of canned foods and a few propane cookers and big pots and just make food. Don't ask for permission. You know, I'll get to the coordination. We have to do crafts coordinate with authorities and things like that. But don't ask for permission. Don't wait. Find out what the needs are. Address them. Get there and, and help who you can. I don't think we would ever be big enough to help an entire community and, and help everybody in even a small town. And I think maybe that's good. I think that what I'd like to see is if this works, maybe it spawns 20, 30 other similar groups to do the same thing. Because I think the smaller the group, you know, you get up to a few hundred people or, or, or so in that kind of size, you have a lot of power, a lot of deployability, but yet... You, you're not so big and cumbersome that you're paying salaries and running marketing campaigns to try to raise funds and stuff like that. Just the, you, our community's big enough. We don't need anybody else. And as the community grows, the, the organization can grow. And that's what I, you know, show up, set up some tents, start handing out resources, bring battery boxes in the back of your truck where you can provide power to people, bring small generators, set up charging stations, not just for cell phones, but charge batteries. Bring us your car battery. We'll charge it. Go home, plug an inverter in. You know, and maybe part of the relief effort is we're bringing in inverters. You know, take this, plug it into your cigarette letter in your car. You'll be able to do these things. You know, and I know that people should do this stuff for themselves, but they don't. They don't. And then we all sit back and we look at it and we think to ourselves, yeah, they should have been prepared. But I think most of us, I think most of us want to help. I think most of us really want to help. We want to do something. And I'll tell you this. Those that say stuff like, are you really helping if you help grasshoppers? Because then they'll just say grasshoppers. No, you're wrong. No, you're wrong. You're absolutely wrong. When you just hand shit out in a bag to people and say, because you're down and out, here you go. And you're the Red Cross or FEMA or whatever. They feel like they're getting it because they're supposed to. And that doesn't probably help a lot. But I think real citizens showing up and saying we're part of a community. We are prepared for disasters. 
and we're here now to share our preparedness with you, I think that turns grasshoppers into ants. I think we can actually talk to people. Hey, look, let's let's help you get back on your feet, and let's l- l- let me show you what we're doing to help you, so that you can make sure when you're back on your feet, this doesn't happen to you again. I think people are receptive to that message, and I think we can really do this. And I, I'm, I'm telling you, kind of the way that I see this functioning, we need somebody to coordinate this as like the top, like the honcho. And I don't know who that is, but I know it ain't me. I ain't got no more bandwidth in my brain to do another thing like this. Uh, as, as like the head guy. So I can't do it. It would be best if that's somebody with experience doing things like this to coordinate things. I think that we come up with some sort of standard operating procedure and some level of kind of an online course that people take. I will provide that. That says this is what you do, this is what you don't do, this is how you communicate with each other. And every person then will have a deployment profile. I'm able to deploy X number of miles from where I'm at, you know, 100% of the time, 50% of the time, whatever it is. And when something happens, the closest people to there, maybe one person in some situations, maybe five people in another, get on the ground and start talking to people that are in, you know, having problems. Where can we set up? What do you need? That person or group of people gets in touch with the honcho who begins to send people to the location who will have ability to deploy. Then they're bringing the right things. I think if there's any level of fundraising, the money sits in a, a fund, and that fund is to be used as needed for any disaster. And if it gets depleted to zero for one disaster, we'll build it back up before the next one if we can. And if not, we'll make do with what we can do. Because people that are willing to do this, I think, will be loading up the back of their trucks with supplies out of their own pocket in addition to what we can do. I think that I don't ever want anybody that's a de- person in deployment to have to touch the money to keep everything clean. I think it would be best if this was set up as a nonprofit. And that basically what can happen is a person can go to a store outside of the disaster area, purchase what exactly what's needed. The coordinator knows who's bringing what. The coordinator can give the shop person, you know, we can talk to grocery stores and stuff like that, a credit card number over the phone so that basically the coordinator's making all the purchases and is in control of everything and has a running inventory of everything that's available to deployment. The on-site team that does the initial staging knows where people need to set up so we can help responders not be in their way. We get on site, we set up, and we get going. If we're asked to move, we move. But we find another place. It doesn't mean we can get everywhere. If we had this in place, the day after the storm, would we have been on Staten Island? Probably not. We probably couldn't have gotten there. Uh, We don't have the credentials. We probably wouldn't be able to get in. Uh, Maybe we could have. I don't know. But wherever we can get to, that's where we would go. And whoever we can help, that's who we would help. And I see these deployments lasting, you know, three, four days and then go home. And I think most of us can do that. I don't think everybody can go every time. But I think if we can put together a 100 responders, we can probably deploy 20 to any disaster. And what I learned from Brandon Shelton and what he's doing with Bellum Ministries, one person can make a difference. So 10 to 20 can make a huge difference. And wouldn't it be great to shove that in the face of the media too? Yeah, you say we're all out for ourselves, we're crazy. Hey, we're on site. We're on site. We're doing the right thing. And I think maybe we do end up with some level of credential eventually as we build some level of respect from first responders out there. Some of the things that can really help with this, if you are law enforcement or first responder in your area, you know, then 
you being part of our team, even if you're going to be de not really deployed as part of our team, but, but existing there so that you can tell your higher-ups, hey, these guys are good guys. They're coming to help and, and act as a liaison. And I think we need people that are skilled at acting as liaisons that are not in those departments as well. Those initial people staging have to be the liaison. We want to set up, we're going to help. We're bringing water, we're bringing food, we're bringing medical supplies, we're bringing power. Okay, And we're going to do this, but we don't want to be in your way. We'll stage wherever you think it's safest for us to stage. And if you don't know, we'll pick a place, and if you want us to move, tell us and we'll move. And imagine what it would be like to have 20 preppers showing up with cases of canned food and stuff like that, setting up propane cookers and just dumping cans in and heating food up and start plating hot meals for people. You know? Or doing the Steve Harris thing with three freaking bread makers in the back of your truck plugged into your backup power system, making three loaves of bread an hour driving down the road and showing up and handing people hot baked bread. Guys, this is how we fix this problem. Instead of bitching about the people that are doing it poorly... We do it our way, people helping people. This is something I want to get done in 2013. I, wanted, I want this thing staged up and ready to go. What I need now, I'm fine with hearing from people that say I want to be a responder. That's, that's great. I, I'm sure I'll hear from a lot of you that want to do that. But it doesn't help me right now. Um, doesn't hurt either. So building a list, just tell me. I'll put it in a folder somewhere, and that way I'll make sure that as we start to build this out, I need, I need a honcho. I need someone that knows how to do this already. I need someone who's done this before. There has to be somebody in this audience that has. I need someone that we can count on to basically be the primary coordinator that maybe knows how to get things like the nonprofit set up so that money can go there. A trustworthy person, some way I can vet you too. That you know, we, you know we're not going to put money here and you're going to take off with it. But I think once you have the 501c3 set up. Um, It's really difficult for that money to get pilfered because you have a record of it going in and the person overseeing it has a fiduciary responsibility and taking money out of there would be the same as walking into a store and stealing it out of the cash register and you go to a place called jail for that. And I, I don't really think we're going to have a problem with that, but we've got to vet the guy that controls the money or the, the gal that controls the money. But it would be great if there was a small team of people that really, that you know how to do this And you guys can work together and get this thing organized and set up. And it's actually probably better if you're not all in the same place. You know, If there was one on the West Coast, one on the East Coast, one in the middle of the country, that would be great because you have that mass, that kind of coordination team that can work with, with members. And I think we can do this. And, and I think that it, I feel better about it than just about anything I've ever tried to put together before in my life. Because I, I don't think it can fail. Because if we only get a few people to show up and we only give away a hundred cases of bottled water and that's what we could do for the first time we do it, it's not a failure, is it? And I also put it to you this way. One of the biggest things I've been trying to drive home is the need to build community and build skill sets. How much experience, how much value will there be to the experience of being part of this? actually deploying, having to live the way the victims are living, basically, with a little more creature comforts, but you're on a cot in a, in a tent or sleeping in your truck or whatever for a few days, helping people and seeing the real results of the disaster. I'm going to talk more about this. I'll probably do a whole episode on it sometime next week and, and my vision for it. But I wanted to share it with you today. And if you think you can be one of the, the top coordinators in this thing, I need to hear from you. And I need to know what you need so that we can get this thing going. And I do want to hear from those of you that say, hey, you know what? I'll be a guy that will deploy. 
And I do think we'll have some kind of a, a vetting process for that too. At least, you know, you know procedure, you know who, how to contact each other, you know what not to do, you know what to do, you know how to find out what to bring. Some kind of formal thing we'll put together and then we'll put that into kind of a little online slideshow course and you take a little test and you get certified. So that when somebody asks us, how do you, you know, how do you know that we can trust your guys that are coming in? We can lay out, I mean, I, we can send, the, the liaison can send the chief of police, the fire chief, the sheriff, etc. Here is our process. Here are the people coming. Here's what they're bringing. Here's where we're staging. So we look organized. We have to have that level of organization. I can promote it. I can respond with you. Uh, I can be right out there in the field with you, and I damn well will. I can't run it. I don't have it in me. I don't have the space and the time left to do it. But I think there's somebody out there that, that probably does that this is a passion for. I think there's probably at least a few people out there that on some level you've done it before. We need you now. I hope to hear from you today. And with that, let's go ahead and get into uh, our next segment today. Now I'd like to introduce uh, Keith Blazer for a totally different subject. We're going to talk about beekeeping. Uh, Keith's actually been listening to the show for a few years. He was born in Jersey. Uh, he currently lives in Utah and has an acre. He's got 14 chickens, one horse, five ducks, one dog, four kids. That's a pretty long thing. They had two milk cows. They're now trading them for a beef cow. Uh, they're going to get a pig at the end of summer. At least that was a plan. It's a little bit of a change there. We'll talk about that. It's into all kinds of outdoor stuff. Rock crawling, Chevy 4x4s, cars, guns. Uh, he's self-employed. He's also a former Boy Scout, uh, EMT, and a correctional officer. Also uh, experienced with driving tow trucks and mechanics. So this is kind of a jack-of-all-trades. Makes me think of myself here with a few differences in that list of trades. But one of the things he's really enjoyed doing recently is backyard beekeeping. He's had some really great results with yields, some struggles, and some challenges we'll talk about, too. And with that, hey, Keith, welcome to the Survival Podcast, man. Hello, how are you? Good, man. Hey, got you on to talk about uh, backyard beekeeping, um, but you uh, you got kind of an interesting background. Uh, you want to tell folks just a little bit about yourself, uh, some of the stuff that uh, that I've got here in the notes about you, uh, climbing rocks with, with the trucks and all that other good stuff? Uh, yeah, I have. Well, I grew up in New Jersey. I now live in Utah. Um, I have a rock crawler that we... Uh, Take the Moab once a year. Um, it's a Chevy Suburban. The kids, well, actually, the friends of mine in a parking lot in Moab, drunk one night, named it Twinkie because <laughs> it's, because it's tan. And I figured, well, um, a bunch of drunk guys in the parking lot. Twinkie's the probably the least of my worries for a name, so I decided to stick with it. So I painted the interior white and the floorboard and stuff, and so we go rock crawling. Um, I have a long history of working on cars and fixing cars. I've been doing it since high school, I guess, and do that on this, like kind of as a hobby. And started beekeeping a couple of years ago as have the space, so I figured I'd do it. My neighbor has... Uh, about 70 hives that he deals with and um, decide to try it and have enjoyed it so far. And you're in Utah, and that's not usually a place people would think of for uh, for bees, but I guess they do fairly well out there? Yeah, they do okay. Um, the season starts, well, they start getting active, you know, March, April, it depends on the weather. 
And then depending on how cold it gets, I mean, today it's 60 some odd degrees, hit 72 yesterday. And, uh, so they, they stay active pretty, pretty long into the season and then, you know, winter up for the, for the winter time. How long have you been keeping bees? I started three years ago. Okay. Uh, just kind of, he, he was doing it. Uh, he lives four or five houses down from me. He doesn't have all 70. My neighbor doesn't have all 70 in his yard. He has them scattered amongst a couple mile radius neighborhood. Um, and probably actually further out than that. And I was like, yeah, it sounds like a good idea. So he kind of said, hey, try it. And I'm like, okay. Uh, first year, I just went and I went to uh, a website. It's Man Lake is the name of the company. Um, I just bought, they have a starter set where you get the hive, well, the two boxes to start, and then a couple of smaller foundations for the top of it. comes with a lid and a cover and everything, and then it comes with the, the full suit, gloves, hood, the whole nine yards, the smoker, the, the little knife that you use and everything. And so I... uh Bought it and kind of went from there. Now you said this friend of yours has like seventy hives. I'm sure you don't have seventy hives. How many hives are you keeping now? I started out with two. His 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 instruction was get two, so you know whether or not one is doing well or not, and you can kind of compare them. And I had that exact case. Uh, I started out with two. I had one that did really well, and one that did okay. Um, that winter, the one died off, and then I started the next. So the next year, I said, "Well, I'm going to get two more, and then have three. Um, the the boxes are actually probably the most expensive part about beekeeping is the boxes. So I was kind of like, "Well, I really don't want to get when you get into the the expense of it. The uh, I figured, well, three is about the limit that I want because if you have three hives and you have two boxes for each, the winter." that they, they basically live in and then you stack the other boxes on top to so they fill with honey. Um, I, uh, I figured oh, I'll do three. So I did the three the next year and they did fine until the winter came and then I had two die off and one leave. Oh, wow. Yeah, so then I had zero. So then this year I got two more and two more just colonies. And so I, I built the two, and then I had one leave mid-year. I think the queen just died, and they didn't have; they just left. Um, and it, it's it's funny that I put the two in, and within two or three weeks of figure after I put them in, I could figure out that this hive wasn't doing as well as the other hive. And so right now I just have the one, which I've already wintered. Or closed up for the winter time, and he's doing pretty good. They're doing pretty good, so I'm basically down to one. And next year, I think I'll just get another one and then leave it at two. And have you, I mean, it sounds like you've had some successes and some failures. Have you learned some things from you know losing some hives about you know why why that happened, or is it just nature taking its course, or or what have you? Well, I think it my. The first hive I lost, I think, had a lot to do with I had the hive sitting on 
a um, pallet and then just on the ground on the pallet in the back corner of my lot. And I really think that the hive was kind of not doing as well just because it wasn't doing as well. I think it has a lot to do with the queen. Um, and I think it just got wet inside, and then they just died off from it. Because I had all the dead bees in the bottom, so I know they stuck around and died off. The next year, when I lost all three, I built a stand to put them on. Because living in Utah, we get snow. And I think the the other hive, it got too much snow in front of it, and they couldn't get in or out or something like that, or maybe it just got wet. So I built them a stand for all three of the hives to sit on. And the... um I actually built it straight, but I think it settled at an angle. And the I have them southern facing, and I I don't know this, but this is my guess. I think that the insides of them, well, I know that the, I know the insides of them got wet because there's mold in, in the two of them. And I think they just got wet and then got moldy and couldn't deal with it. And that once they're wet, they can't deal with the. I mean, they really don't have a way to heat them to warm themselves up except by warming themselves up. And if it's all wet and they can't dry out, then they're kind of stuck. Yeah. So I think that's why the two of them died off. And then the one left, I think it was a food issue. That they had too many bees and not enough food, so they just said, well, we're going to leave. They swarmed on you. Yeah, and took off. And this year, I was actually outside when my one hive decided it didn't want to be there anymore and just left. I was kind of interesting. So I'm outside working on my car, and all these bees are flying around. I'm like, hmm, wonder all that. Wonder where all them them are coming from. And so I <laughs> went out the next day or two, and I was like, oh wow, look at that! I only have one hive left. Okay. So, would you say it's a, a difficult hobby then? I mean, it sounds like you've had some challenges. Well, it's not a difficult hobby. Um, I I go out about once a week or so and work on them, check them out, and do things with them. Probably should do it more often, but I only get out there about once a week. Um, and it's, there's nothing really hard about it. I just kind of figured when, when I got into it, my neighbor was like, you know, you, you lose about 25% anyway, no matter what you do is what he's found out. And the people that he's talked to is you lose about 25% of your hives anyway. So I figured, well, Lost the first one, which I knew, which wasn't was kind of expected, just because of how poorly it was doing compared to the other one. I think the three that I lost, it was obviously my fault because when when the when I put them on the stand, they didn't tilted, and then the water would just kind of run in when it rained or snowed or anything, so they really didn't have a chance. And I think I didn't leave enough food for the for the other one, so it left. So that was those three were my fault. Uh, this year. Not sure why the other one left, other than it wasn't doing as well as the other, as the one next to it was. So maybe it was a clean issue too. Um, but as far as difficult, it's not, not physically, well, it's physically demanding when you try to get the hives, when you get the boxes off and they're full of honey, because they weigh a lot. But it's not difficult to do, I guess. Well, that makes sense. Um... Would you say it's then? Is it a lot of work? That it, it maybe uh, there's more work to be done, or is it just? Or do you think that maybe there's something to being a little bit more difficult of environment um, with Utah as well? 
I don't know if it's the environment. I mean, we are the beehive state, so we do have some bees. <clears throat> I think uh, it's probably my lack of knowledge, since I haven't really. I don't. I'm not like a bee expert or anything. I just do it. Um, I've had a success with it though. The first year out of those two hives, I got twelve gallons of honey. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, and twelve gallons, and not pounds, gallons. Twelve gallons. Yeah, that's a that's a lot of honey. Yeah, it's like it was, and we're still using that now. Although we're almost out, and my wife's like, because she gives, she's a school teacher, and she gives all the kids in her class honey for Christmas. So oh. she's like, well, "What am I going to do this year?" And I'm like, "Well, we'll call John because John, I'm sure, has ton of it, and John's John's an <laughs> has got seventy hives." So, and then last year, I got probably just as much, but I didn't. I did not get it out of the home fast enough. So it sat in my garage, and I ended up just taking that outside and letting the beehives that I have now eat it. So it was kind of not really a waste, but a waste as far as honey production goes. Sure. Um, how do you? What, what did you do for extraction? The neighbor John has a extractor, a spinner. Oh, okay, cool. So, I think that's the works. way to go if you can get your hands on one. They're not cheap, but it seems like it's 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 the way to do it. Yes. Yes, and they're not cheaper. I would have one already. Probably should have bought one a couple of years ago. Because that's been our, we haven't, I've got, oh, I don't know, probably 50 pounds of, 50 pounds of honey in the garage that I still have to extract out from this year. Um, but it's like getting our schedules to come together where I can spend a day and he can spend a day. Getting it out has been an issue lately. But, and then you kind of get to do, if we can do it this week, it probably won't be that bad, but. You may have to heat up the garage and get it warm and all that other stuff because warm honey flows better than cold honey. I'm impressed with the the total volume there. I can make a lot of meat out of 12 gallons of honey. (laughs) Yes, good. And I would, for anybody listening, I would totally do it. I have no qualms about doing it, no problems with doing it. Um, The expense, once, once you buy... The initial, initially, the cost is a lot, comparably to some other hobbies, I guess. Well, I guess it's probably not that much more different than some some of them. But initially, that's your cost. And once you initially buy all the stuff, then you're done. The only thing that you have to buy down the road is um, bees, if you if they die off or something like that or if you want to expand, and then more stuff. But I haven't bought boxes since I since I bought them originally. And my bee suit's obviously fine. My gloves are fine. And I ended up changing my uh, my, my hat and my, my net because I like the, the original-style hats better than the ones that they have now. So I bought a, an old-style hat. Gotcha. I mean, what part of what part of Utah are you in? You said Utah, but I mean, because I've been to Utah, but the places are the only area I've been to is Salt Lake. Uh, I live in a place called Hooper, spelled as Hooper, and okay. it's about a, it's about an hour north of Salt Lake, kind of west of Ogden. Okay, that's kind of a nicer area. I, I know what you're talking about now. At least you're flying over the place. A lot more green up there. 
There's a little bit. Not quite like New Jersey, but there is no. green here. Yeah, it's not the Garden State, right? <laughs> but, yeah, definitely uh, not the Garden State. So there's probably less um, foolishness of government, I guess, is the nicest way I can put it. I was born yeah. in Jersey. I don't know if you know that, but I got out of there as quick as I could. <laughs> you got out of where? Jersey. I was born, oh, yeah. born in Red yeah, Bank. Yeah. You're born in where? Jack? Red Bank. Red Bank? Okay. Yeah, Fort Monmouth. Yeah, I grew up in uh, Woodbury, Woodbury slash Woodbury Heights. Okay, that's interesting. And you ended up in Utah. Yeah, 26 years in New Jersey, and my parents still live back there. My brother lives in Oregon, um, and I I miss it a lot. Some days would never go back. Could never live back there. I don't mind visiting. What I miss about the Northeast is is just a little bit of stuff, and and part of it is the the uh, the greenness of it in the uh, in the summer, the the color in the fall, and the soil, the, yeah. the soil, the whole north. I mean, Virginia, ob. Oh, it's just you look at that stuff and go, God, I'd kill to have that down here. But uh, there's yeah. a, seems to be a little more liberty in the south. But this beekeeping thing for you, this is just like part of a of a bigger thing, right? You kind of have like your own little homestead thing going on there. You keep. You had a couple of milk cows, and you, you trade them in for what a beef beef cow instead. Yeah, we had a um, we have an acre, and I got tired of mowing the backyard, so I figured oh, I'll get a you know a cow and a horse. Well, actually, I figured we'd get a something to eat the grass. So we got some sheep first, and the sheep were really nice sheep. I got Jacob sheep, got them out of got them out of California. Really cool sheep. Figured what the heck. Um, they were horrendous. They were not, they were just horrendous because you couldn't do anything with them. Um, you get within five feet of them, they'd run away. And it's mm. like, okay, well, I kind of wanted something friendly in the backyard. So we ended up getting rid of the sheep. And then we had someone who's giving away a goat. So I said, oh, we'll get a goat. Well, got the goat over here and the goat thought it was a dog. Literally. He'd come on the back porch and do, you know, make all this noise and stuff, and then try to get in the house. And I'm like, you're a goat. You're not a dog. So, <laughs> and the kids had fun with it for a little bit, tried to ride it and stuff. And you yeah. know, then we got, we got rid of the, got rid of the goat. And then, uh, I ended up going on a, a scout camp for a week. We went up into the high Uenas to, um, I think it was Mount Baldy, but I'm not sure. And it was a 15, 17-mile hike in and a 17-mile hike out. And it was, you know, we stayed up there for four days, and I really learned the importance of getting a horse. And so I was like, well, my daughter wanted a horse, so I bought her a horse for her birthday. And I was like, well, this ought to be interesting. And so I had a horse, and I'm like, okay. And then my other other daughter wanted an animal, and there was a uh, Dutch-belted, milk cow on KSL, which is a local TV station, and they have a a website and has a really good classified classified section. So there was this Dutch belted milk cow and eight sections of fence for relatively cheap, and I think it was like 700 bucks or something. And she was seven months old. So brought her, bought her, brought her home, gave her this really cool name. Um, and then the same neighbor has a hundred acres that he rent out, leases out from a, a guy and has 
40 or 50 cows on there. So we put her over about a year and a half. When she was about a year and a half old, we put her into, into the, into the field and, um, she got pregnant and brought her home, you know, seven or five or six months later. And she ended up having the calf, which me being from New Jersey and having no experience at all ever in any kind of farm animals except a girl I dated once had a cow and we had to beat it with a two by four to get it back in the fence. And then they ended up having Alice steaks after that. But, uh, <clears throat> um, Josie, the, the cow, our cows was, had, had a baby <clears throat> calf and I got to birth the calf, which was a very interesting experience for me because I had no idea what was going on. I mean, obviously knew what was going on, but had no idea what to do or how to do or anything like that. So that was kind of fun, and the kids got to see it. So we had these two milk cows, and Josie grew up, and then Annabelle, which is the, was the baby's name, grew up, and they got to be kind of annoying. Every time you'd come home, they'd be in the backyard mooing at you. Like, hey, I'm home. You're home now. Come feed me. So we have to go in the backyard and feed them, and they're getting fed twice a day, and it just cost them way too much money. So the same neighbor, we ended up trading um, both of them for a beef cow. We haven't got it yet because we spent the summer eating, and I don't have a freezer yet to put them in. But So we've got this, this waiting on this beef cow and trade for their two basically yard ornaments that we had that were supposed to be milk cows. I think a lot of people have similar experiences. You get livestock and you think it's going to be one thing and it's another. And sooner or later, I guess you figure out what works best for you and your needs from a, a husbandry and a, uh, a production standpoint, you know, what you want your actual production to be. I think that people get pretty blown away by how much milk one cow produces if they're just a, a normal-sized family. Yeah, well, the the same neighbor would, has – Jersey cows that he milks, and he hasn't milked them in a bit. But he was milking them, milking one, and then was milking two, and getting five or six gallons of milk a day. That's a lot of milk. Yeah, and he has a, I don't know, seven or eight people in his family, but it's like, that's a lot of milk, and we'd get his milk, and I'd get, you know, we'd get get it, and I'd make butter and all the other fun stuff. So that was the original plan with the cows that we had, was to milk them, and then I got you know, then it was like, okay, do I really want to get up at five in the morning? <laughs> Every, Every day, day. Milk the cow. And milk the cow. And I don't have a barn yet. And so it's like, okay, if I have a milk cow, I need a barn because I don't want to milk in the snow. There's no snow here. And they need to be milked every day. And I was like, okay, well, maybe milk cows are a great and interesting idea, but not right now at this point. So. It's kind of a, being a dairyman, it's kind of a specialized thing, even if it's a very small dairy with a single or a, a two cows. The, the thing with your goat, I think your big problem with there, you had one goat, right? Yeah, it was one goat. And we yeah, had a dog. They get lonely, man. They, that's why you started acting like a dog. You wanted it in the yeah. house. Well, it was a, and we got, got them used, if goats can be used. You used, they were used. I just, I just think Jack's used goat emporium. <laughs> Yeah, use goats. So he yeah. with his herd, and then he got split off. I guess, and you know, he was probably like he wanted some company. Yeah, so we ended up we ended up giving him to some people that had ten acres that they needed, and they had a couple other goats, so they needed. So yeah, yeah, that's funny. Though. I've heard of them being, you know, 
really following people around if they're alone and not being happy alone. I never heard of them trying to get in the house and on the oh, yeah. Oh, boy, that's, that's awesome. Yeah. And it was big enough that the kids couldn't, my kids couldn't do anything with them as far as get them out of the house. So, Dad, and I had to go go rescue the goat from out of the house. And so I'm like, okay. <laughs> you're a goat, not a dog. And I was like, now you, you seem like you're not done punishing yourself with the uh, the trials of uh, of uh, livestock, though. I don't know, maybe you've done it by now because we got your, your thing in for the show quite a few months ago, but you had on here also you were planning on getting a pig at the end of the summer. What's what's up um, with that plan? Well, we have we ended up we were going to get pigs, but ended up the neighbor decided that she wanted to get pigs, and so we just got a pig from her, and just paid her for it, and they're raising it and taking care of it in the whole nine yards, and I don't have to do anything except go to the dish butcher and pick out what cuts I want. Oh, that's that's the way to do it. Yeah. <laughs> so when you say they're raising, you mean that like basically you're you're paying for its feed and all, and neighbors taking care of it for you? Yep, pretty much. That's yeah. awesome. It's uh, three hundred fifty bucks, and it's the whole pig. And all we do is pick it up from the butcher and decide on what cuts we want. And that's it. And it's like that yeah, sounds like a fair deal to me. I've been watching a series called Victorian Farm on YouTube, and one of the animals they're raising are the pigs, and they have a whole litter of these little pigs, and I was looking at them and going, they're so damn cute. I I don't have a problem, you know, raising livestock for slaughter, but I'm like, I have a whole different view of those things now. I don't know if I'd, yeah. if I'd personally want to do it, they're, especially when they're, like, adolescent. They they run around following people like dogs, and they're all happy and all, and, you know, but last night I made pork roast, so I'm not ready to, <laughs> to trade it off or anything yet, but it does seem well, like one of the more difficult animals because of the personality they have, you know, to say like right. you're 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 on the way towards the barbecue, you know. Right. Well, my uh, I have an an office up in Roy, that an office building that I own in Roy, which is not too far from us. And the people behind us, behind the office, had a pig, and I brought the, one of the daughters, one of my daughters, over there, and said, "Hey, check this out, it's a little pig," and it was just really cute and everything. And I'm like, "You think you could kill that?" And she's like, "No, no, no, no," because they wanted to get a pig and name it. They wanted three pigs because oh. I have three younger children, um, and they wanted to name it like bacon, like breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And I'm like, really? <laughs> so they, you know, I showed them this pig, and they're like, no, we don't want a pig anymore. We don't want a pig yeah. anymore. Like, yeah. The thing <laughs> yeah. is, they they lose that cuteness once they're mature, man. They're not. <laughs> but when they're little, man, they're one of the cutest things I've ever seen. Now, you also keep ducks and chickens as well? Yes. I have uh I think we have 10 chickens now, um, and one, originally we got seven or eight, and they've all, they've died off down to one of the originals, and I've just replaced them, and so we're at 10 right now, and get, I don't know, five or six eggs a day, if more, if not more than that, and I've got probably six dozen eggs in my refrigerator right now, so if you know anybody wants eggs, and shipping might be a little hard, but... <laughs> what's, what's, what breed of chickens do you got, or is it like a mixed flock, or uh, kind of just a mixed flock? Um, we had just a couple Rhode Island Reds, some Arcanas, um, just that's really you know just kind of a mix. Whatever the, the we started out buying them as chicks, and then they grow up and become chickens. But you spend I don't know seven months feeding them, and you get nothing from it. So I was like, well. 
looked around and neighbor, another neighbor had some. So I'm like, well, you want to get rid of some of them? We're like, oh, yeah, we got 40 of them. So we just bought them from him. So Shortcut to adulthood there, eh? Shortcut to adulthood. Yeah, and the ducks are a love-hate relationship. Really? <laughs> yeah. Well, have you ever eaten a duck egg? Oh, yeah. I, they're disgusting. I'm sorry. <laughs> I really? Think so. what, 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 kind, what kind of ducks do you have? Um, two, two mallards, male and female. Okay. Two white ones. I have no idea what they are. Okay. And then a, a grayish black one, which I don't know what he is either. Okay. And we had uh, we had the ducks laid a numerous numerous eggs in the, in the spring and summer. Like we have two females, two of the five, and now we have six. But two of the five are females, and they would lay tons of eggs. So we're, my wife's like, okay, let's fry one up and, you know, scramble it. It was just, it, it didn't taste bad. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't a bad tasting egg. It was just weird tasting. Weird tasting, huh? And the only ducks I've ever eaten eggs from are khaki Campbell's, but I can't see them being much different than a mallard as far as egg production. Well, it was just, it kind of had a more rubbery taste to it. Yeah. And it wasn't, it didn't taste bad. It was just rubbery and just weird because, I don't know, maybe our chicken eggs are that much better or something. I don't know, but I no desire to eat another duck egg. And my kids don't like duck. And so I've got, what I had was my daughter and her boyfriend, who's now her husband, went out and decided to get, you know, baby ducks. And... So then my other three kids had to have baby ducks. So I had five ducklings, and ducklings grow up. <laughs> then I had five grown ducks, and then the, the two mallards had a baby. Had two, had three, actually. Two we didn't catch in time, and then they ended up dying because they didn't have any water or food. You didn't know they had them. Yeah, didn't know we had them. Uh, <laughs> um and they're, you know, obviously in the backyard. Don't don't come in at all. Well, and then they had another one. One of the other ones hatched, and we found it and caught it. And then it lived inside for a bit in a box. And then it went outside in the chicken coop. Because our chicken coop is my mother when she visited from New Jersey called it a chicken palace. Um, basically, I built a ten by twelve shed and sectioned off one side of it for the where the chickens come in and live and the rest I use for feed storage and just all around storage and stuff like that. And then we sectioned off the section of it to where the ducks can live and the baby chickens can live. And so this one duck lives out there and now of course it's full grown. So now I've got six and they're nice ducks. I mean, they don't, you know, they quack in the backyard six in the morning, wake you up like a bunch of roosters do it would or something. And it's always right by our bedroom window. <laughs> They can't be loud. To me, though, they're like they are the most self-sufficient livestock. They don't require a lot of upkeep, you know. And I, I don't know about the the you know direct egg eating thing. I don't even, never really eat a lot of eggs, but I know my grandmother whenever she was making breads or cakes or anything, she always used the duck eggs for that. She said it was richer. Maybe it's just because, like you said, like it's not that great, you know. With a, right. So well, that, that's that's what I've heard, that if you want to make a cake, a duck egg is a good egg to use. But yeah. as far as scrambling it, 
I wouldn't scramble it. <laughs> I mean, I mean, you can scramble and eat it and try it, but personally, yeah. I, I won't eat. I don't have to eat one to know that I don't like it anymore. <laughs> that's, that's what I've heard. If you got to make a cake and it calls for eggs, put use a duck egg. Now, what about eating ducks themselves? I mean, that might be a solution because uh, I'll tell you that is something I really like is is duck, you know, for food. So maybe you could incubate some of those ducks next year and. You know, around this time, they can graduate into, uh, you know, roasted ducks. Right, because all my ducks have names, and my kids would really like that. <laughs> but these are the new ducks, right? They keep Either the way. ducks. The, the news are new ducks. And the, <laughs> Either way. As soon as they were born, they would have names and personalities, and that would be it. <laughs> that does make things kind of tough. But you're doing all of this, like you said, on an acre? Yes, have an acre. So it's another example of small small scale homesteading, and you know I guess the bees are one piece of this this larger you know. Independent yeah, I was listening. To, I was listening to the show yesterday. Yesterday's show, I think it was, and I came up with some ideas that I'm going to try about putting wood and burying it in my backyard because we haven't figured out what the name of that is yet. Yeah, yeah, I'm calling them woody beds now because I just think. You know, when I when I saw real hugaculture beds, I'm like, that's not what we're doing. But what we're doing works. And like, for instance, uh, in on my property, I've got neighbors that live half a mile up the road from me. I guess it's close to half a mile. And I mean, you couldn't have a better side by side comparison with that. They have the same exposure as far as sunlight and everything. And during the summer, in their beds, they were watering twice a day to keep their plants alive. And they did good, but they didn't really, you know, it didn't really, they didn't really kill it. My stuff, we watered through the summer twice a week versus twice a day. And I have pepper plants that were four, four and a half feet tall. And whatever it is, I think it's a combination of the holding the moisture in, but I think it's, I think it's the fungus that, the fungal net it creates in the soil that helps with the moisture retention, helps with the bioactivity, helps all of it. It's, uh, yeah, definitely give it a shot. I know it's a little drier out there, but I know Holzer's done it in desert climates. He's done it in the tropics, so it, I think it would work universally. Yeah. Well, the one, another example of my uh, my yard never had a yard put in it. Um, we bought the house five years ago, and the people when it was built in '94, no one ever put a yard in. They put, you know, some decorative birch trees out front and stuff like that, but they never actually put down sod and grass. So all the grass that I have is natural Utah field grass. Native it's, stuff, yeah. It has its pluses and its minuses. Its minuses is, you know, I wouldn't go laying on it because it's not all that comfortable, but the plus is I water maybe once a year, if that. And... My neighbor waters twice a day, and his yard is greener, but not that much greener. Sure. And I cut mine not as often as he cuts his. And I'm not a I'm not a yard guy. I spent we spent six years living in Arizona, and I loved my yard down there. It was red colored rocks. And yeah. <laughs> I went out with a leaf blower to blow off the pine needles because we had a pine tree once uh you know, once a year, and that was the extent of it. Yeah. But yeah. I really, um, we used to, I don't know if you know much about Utah irrigation, but they flood irrigated years ago. 
and there was a oh a river a stream whatever you want to call it that the, the irrigation company would fill up every every year and then you'd, you'd have a share of water where you'd just come and block the stream off and then it'd flood your whole backyard okay and then unflood it and pull out your block when your time ran out and that's how a lot of the farms around a lot of the land around here is still done we're under a pressurized system now they brought in pressurized years ago you had to sell <clears throat> sell the, the irrigation company will trade half of your share back to them in order to get to flood it in order to get the pressurized irrigation because out here you actually have to own the water share oh if yeah you have yeah 100 acres you gotta if you can buy it from somebody really cheap, but if it doesn't come with water shares, it's, it's worth with dirt. That's what it'll be without the water. Um, so I have a, this trench in the back of my property that both my neighbors have filled in and I haven't. So I'm thinking, okay, I got a couple trees I want to down. I'm going to cut down a tree or two, stick them back there, cover them with dirt, kind of make a bed, see what I do with it. So and that's, my bees are back there too, so it's like, okay, hmm. Yeah, I think a lot of times in other parts of the country we overlook how precious water is because we take it for granted. If it falls on our property, it's ours. But for those of you in Utah, Colorado, part I'd say parts of Wyoming, et cetera, a lot of times it's that first rights thing. And if it ain't you, then it ain't you. Right. Yeah, because yeah, it doesn't rain here much. No. We uh, thought about moving and we're going to move, thinking about going up to Oregon, and I looked at how much rain they got, and I was like, no, I don't want to live there. I'm <laughs> not a fan of water, raining, I should say. I'm yeah, got gotcha. Jersey, and way too much rain back there. I was like, no, I'm kind of done with that. So bringing it back around here at the end with the bees, it's something you would you know, highly recommend to people that they do for themselves as well? Well, if if you've got the if you're if you can legally have it on your property, near your property, next to your property, I would do it in a heartbeat. And I have mine at the back of my lot because most of my lot was horse and cattle spot space. So I couldn't obviously put it in that in with them or they'd come and knock it over. Sure. But when I'm out there working with them, <clears throat> my kids come out, they help me. Um, they just put a, a jacket on. And then um, I've, you can get within four or five feet of the hive and not even worry about it in, you know, shorts and T-shirts and not even worry about it. Um, and I've been stung once in three years, and that's it. That's really good. <laughs> and I was out there working with them in shorts and a T-shirt, and I got stung yeah. on the arm. And I'm like, okay, no um, and it's, I mean, it's definitely worth it. I, and I, after listening to all, all the, the shows you've had on the other kinds of beehives. Yeah. Um, I have bees because I want the honey. I don't, the, um, I think bees are going to be around long after, well, bees have been around for years. I'm not sure that there's much we could do as a, as a people to get rid of the bees. I know there's been some issues lately. Um, and we've probably done a lot to do that, but I have the bee I have bees because I want the honey and all the other benefits come in with them, which is great. Um, but 
it takes so much more effort for a bee to make the comb than it does to make the honey. That's why I chose the box. The kind I chose the, the Langstrom boxes, which is what I have, versus the other kind, because all the others are cutting away all their comb, and they have to make the comb again. Yeah. Yeah, I think I could say this, that there's a lot of problems with bees in general, but it didn't begin the day people started to put them in a box hive. That's that's not right. what's caused the problem. Right. Yeah. And I yeah. think I think on some levels, I, I really appreciate what the guys with Top Bar are doing, but from a working standpoint, when people say that it's it's not any more difficult or not any more work, I don't know that I believe that. Because the, the Lanstro hives are designed specifically for beekeeping. So they're specifically right. designed for the beekeeper. And, of course, that means the bees do give something up. But it also means that when I want to take a frame out, I just take a frame out. You know, I don't have to worry about damaging the cone if it's attached to the side of the box or what have you. So I think both sides have their pluses and minuses. And once we make our final move, that's one thing I want to get. And I know everybody's about to gas, but I, I, I'm probably going to go with conventional hives because, like you, and with me being a mead maker, making mead is expensive when you have to buy your honey. It, it, there's a lot of yeah. honey that goes into a batch of mead. And when I hear you getting, would you say, nine gallons? Well, I'll tell you. When I hear 12 gallons, I see enough mead for years, right? Yeah. And, and that oh, would, nice. that's a lot of money to buy. I mean, you go buy 12 gallons of honey, you're talking about some coin there. Yeah. Well, and I would have... The next year, I probably had about the same amount. Hmm. I just didn't get it out of the comb. And if you don't get it out of the comb, it's, you know, I basically fed it back to my bees the next year. Sure. The year after. Um, and so I would be sitting on, you know, another 12 gallons still. Cause, and we're still using the first 12 gallons, and we eat it pretty regularly. And, you know, the wife gives it away at Christmas, and she gives a lot of it away. Um, and it's, I, I do it for that reason. Yeah. And that's it. I don't, you know, I'm, I'm in it. I mean, cause honey doesn't go bad. It can yep. forever. It sits, you know, it sits in the five gallon bucket in my basement. Fine. I, you know, when we use the one five gallon, we bring the other five gallon upstairs and, and then it, you know, sits out in the sun basically and it turns back into itself versus crystallized stuff and we just use it from there. And, you know, every morning I eat it when I have breakfast. So my kids eat it on whenever they make stuff. Yeah. I think that if we look at it, too, as a, as a sugar source versus any other sugar source that we can produce for ourselves, there, there's nothing that can that can hang with it. Like, you look at sorghum, and it's cool, and sorghum syrup is great taste and stuff and all. But when you think about having to plant, you know, a half an acre of sorghum and then press that crap out – and then cook it down, and for every 10 gallons of juice, you end up with a gallon of syrup versus yanking a cone out, you know, cutting the cast off it, throwing it in an extractor and spinning it, um, you know, or cooking down sugar beets or any other sugar source that we can grow domestically here in the United States on a small scale. I don't think anything can compete with, with, with honey. Yeah. Yep, I would agree. Well, and the other thing with... Um, with the, the Langstroth hives is you're just taking the honey from them. You're cutting the caps off, spinning it, giving it back, giving them back the frames with everything still there. So the bees just go in and, you know, fix the caps that you cut off and eat them or do whatever they do with them and then fill them full of honey and recap them. Yeah. 
They don't have to go through that, that whole comb manufacturing process another time. Yeah, and that's a lot of work. From, from what I understand, 10 times the amount of work it is to make honey. And it's like, okay, well, I'm going to give them as much, the least amount of work as they can and have as much food as they want. And so, like right now, the one box I have out there is four boxes high, three and a half boxes high or so, because I have big boxes and little boxes. Got you. And so, yeah. But the, and if anyone ever gets in and decide what you want now, big boxes, little boxes, because they're really a pain to to spin out if you only have if you have mixtures, because you have to separate them out because it's kind of like a wheel. Oh, you're saying do one or the other, not both? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> right. Yep. Okay. Standardize on something. Okay. Cool. That makes sense. One or the other, and the big ones when they are full are heavy. They are not light. <laughs> How heavy would you say they are? I mean, just you know, guessing at it. Uh, 50, 60 pounds, probably. Okay. Yeah, I mean, it's it's heavy, but it's something a, a grown man can pick up and, and move. Right. Yeah, okay. But you can't get your kid to carry it for you because it's heavy for him. Yeah. I end up yeah, putting a wheelbarrow out there, and when I go do it, and put two or three in a wheelbarrow and wheel it back, they're that full. That's one of the most versatile homestead tools, and we just never talk about it on the air because it's, so, it's, it's a wheelbarrow. It is what it is, but to me... Um, I use my wheelbarrow probably five out of seven days out of the week for something. Yeah. Cool, man. Well, hey, uh, you got any just final thoughts for folks that are you know considering doing this? Do it. Don't be scared. I guess I. Yeah, I would do it if. Yeah, and I would do it anywhere. I mean, I would have done it in Arizona. I think if they would have let us. Um. I would definitely do it in New Jersey, and I would definitely do it if you're planting a garden, just because it helps out. Sure. And, and those it's like amazing the, how different you, honey tastes, too. Yeah, I was going to say, you mentioned the desert southwest, like Arizona. Uh, some folks that came to visit me this year brought me some honey that was from Arizona. That was most of the, 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 the I guess, the pollen and nectar that was gathered was from mesquite. And that was some of the most amazing honey. I'm like, I need a gallon of this to make some meat out of this stuff. It's it's it, it's amazing honey. So I'm with you. Wherever you are, I think it works. If bees live there, they can live in your backyard. Yep. So unless you're in Antarctica or something like that, give it a shot. Yeah. Well, and like you have some failures. Like the bee police didn't come to your house and kick your butt or anything. They were like, you screwed up and lost some bees. I mean, it's, it's they're bees. They're insects. You replace them. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and the, from what I understand, when the bee leaves the the colony and goes out searching for uh, pollen, it goes straight up in a circle and then takes off. So if it's in your backyard, it's not going to come buzzing at your house to look for the pollen. It goes up and then searches. It doesn't go straight out. So if it's 20 feet away, you're not going to notice it. Cool. Well, hey, man, I, I appreciate you coming on the uh, the air with us, and I think it's cool that like it's like you're not a beekeeper in the sense of like it's your profession or your your one thing or your big thing. It's it's what I think it's going to be for a lot of people in the audience as they get into it. It's an additional thing. It's just I have a few hives, I get a bunch of honey out of it, you know, and I, and I think that's good for people to hear from somebody like you versus you know a, a, you know an expert. I think we can learn from experts, but I think we can gain confidence from just, you know, the average person doing it, because that's what we've got in the audience, is average people that, you know, just want to give it a shot, and they want to be sure it's something they're going to be able to handle. Yes, well, it's, try it. 
and yeah, I know, know nothing. I knew nothing about bees when I started, literally. I'm not to say I know much more now, but it worked, and they're doing okay so far. And I would totally do it again. Cool. Well, very cool, man. And with that, folks, this has been uh, Jack Spirica today, along with Keith Keith Blazer, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Nobody up there cares, they're living for today.